Welcome to part two of a two-part series focusing on artificial intelligence. Do we humans have free will or are we like machines, programmable? American psychologist B.F. Skinner studied how we learn to behave from our environment. In Skinner's view, we can be trained by participating in dynamic systems that create and feed desire. The system offers something, sees how we respond, then gives us more of what it seems we want. A feedback loop of response and reward. Response and reward. Response and reward. And it's no surprise that Silicon Valley loves B.F. Skinner. Much of the technology we use today reflects his thinking with the purpose of securing our engagement. What makes us come back for more? What gets the most likes? What do we respond to fastest? What drives you to hit thumbs up? And so we click. We click away our data, our time, our sanity. And my gut tells me this is not going to go away anytime soon. In fact, as my guest today reveals, we're becoming an inextricable part of this dynamic system. Biological machines plugged into AI platforms. Algorithms feed us what we want, measure our responses, and bring us further into their world. If you have enough data on people, you can create a version of reality and a version of you and a version of me because information has power, narratives have power, technology has power, AI has power, systems have power. You are in a system, and so we should be talking about that system. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. At the ripe age of 24, after a career that already spanned fashion, cyber intelligence, and politics, Christopher Wiley started a job that would take him headlong into one of the biggest political scandals of our time. CEO Mark Zuckerberg admits that a data mining firm linked to the Trump presidential campaign accessed the data of more than 50 million Facebook users. Facebook and Cambridge Analytica have tried to place the blame on him for violating the social media platform's terms of service. Chris started working at what became Cambridge Analytica. In fact, he helped build the technology. You might recall this was the data firm that Steve Bannon hired to help influence the 2016 Trump campaign. The political consulting firm brought down by a scandal over how it got private data. We need to make sure that there aren't any other Cambridge Analytica's out there. As the reality of his client's intent became clear, Chris blew the whistle, which catalyzed the beginning of the end of the company he helped build. 
and along with it helped open the whole world's eyes to the effects of cyber manipulation. If you can capture every channel of information around a person and then inject content around them, you can change their perception of what's actually happening. Today, Chris, who was one of Time's most influential people in the world, advises governments and intelligence organizations, speaks at tech conferences, and investigates the information wars. Chris and I met in LA recently. He has green hair, nose piercings, and a singular message. If you want to change the destructive path we're on, we need to take control of our technology before it controls us. You take a person and they're walking down the street and you go up and ask them, are you happy? Usually people will say yes. And then rewinds. And then you go to that same person and you, you say, have you gained weight this year? Did you have an argument recently? Do you, like, does your boss annoy you? Do your kids not listen to you? <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And then go, are you happy? And someone goes, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe my life could be better, right? Mm-hmm. And it depends on how you experience the world that sort of activates one thing or, or another. And one of the things I learned is that there is evil in a lot of people that don't seem to be that bad when you talk to them. And if they are put into the right environment, they can go down a path where they start thinking in some pretty insidious ways. What is that environment? And are we in it right now? We rewind the clock back to 2008, where Chris's understanding of how data, AI, and politics began. It was the beginning of the end of the age of innocence for Chris, and in a way, for all of us, when it comes to how we look at data and the people who harness it. I'll let Chris tell his story, and then, in the second half, we discuss the future. We begin in Chris's home country. When I worked in the Liberal Party in Canada, the Obama campaign started happening, and I got sent down to go and learn about what was happening in American politics. From Ottawa. From, from Ottawa down to the United States. Mm-hmm. I got introduced to all these people on the, on the Obama campaign, and they kind of shooed me over to like, all these data people. And I'm going, oh, they put me with all the nerds. And I'm rolling my eyes like, no, I want to see like all the cool stuff. But actually, I was seeing all the cool stuff. I was seeing like the 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 spine and the brain of of this campaign. And you know, people often focused on sort of you know his amazing speeches or the delivery or the branding or all of that. But that was sort of that was all the sort of the makeup on 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 the campaign. And so what I was looking at is like the essence of that campaign, the organs, the things that made it uh, what it was that you could then dress all that cool stuff on. So I go, I go back to Canada, and you know, the first thing that they say is, "What have you learned about like the Obama campaign? Like, tell us. Like, we want to hear everything." And I go, "Okay," and I start talking about algorithms, and just they like they kind of go, "What algorithms? What are you talking about? Like, it sounds like sci-fi. Like, you know, no, no, tell us about like the YouTube videos, what the Obama campaign was doing." I'm like, "No, no, you, no." It was like literally they're building AI. That's what they're doing, and, and the reaction of the party was just like, this sounds insane. I said, look, actually, the Obama campaign wasn't, is not about just writing a great speech. It was about understanding 
what different kinds of people were experiencing and then trying to engage them in a way that was specific to them. It's about lots of little interactions that are personal and, you know, sort of enduring over time where you develop relationships with lots of people on their terms, not your terms. And you do that through data. And data allows you to create empathy for your campaign in a, in a scalable way. And for me, that was like completely, it totally changed how I saw politics. So did they take you up on that? Eventually, we were able to import some of the technologies that the Obama campaign was using and build a voter file, which is a sort of a national database that you can then do sort of analysis in and then target different voters. But being a teenager and going through all of that, I sort of said to myself, I, I kind of need to like go and become my own age again. But like working in politics is sort of like working in the mafia a bit. Like you can try to leave, but they won't necessarily let you. And so I thought I should go to the UK because it was sort of an ocean away and they wouldn't be able to sort of get me there. So you get interested in fashion. Yeah. Fashion to me is the same thing as politics in the sense that it's about identities, what is your role in society, and how you want to present yourself. And it's cyclical, it's fast-moving, and it's all about trends. And from a modeling perspective, it's really interesting. But at the same time, I got introduced to a firm called SCL Group. And SCL Group was a British military contractor. And they worked in information operations for the British military and for the American military. And so as I was starting this PhD in fashion, I also started working at a military contractor that was doing counter-extremism work and information operations for military clients. On one hand, I'm sitting in fashion school looking at how to construct a fashion trend in a computer. And then I go into an office and I'm looking at how to construct what in my head is also a fashion trend is just the fashion is an ideology. What I was looking at in fashion was helping me understand extremism and vice versa. If you ask yourself, like, if Donald Trump was an article of clothing, what would he be? And for me, like, Donald Trump is Crocs, those <laughs> shoes with holes in them. And it, it's actually, like, a really useful way of understanding Donald Trump because so these are like objectively ugly shoes. But Donald thinks he's very attractive. Well, you know, and I'm sure if you asked a croc, it might think it's attractive too. Nice. <laughs> um, and if you if you tried to wear a croc, you know, whatever, 20 years ago, people would be like, what did you put on your shoe? And what were you smoking when you did that? <laughs> um, and enough sp- particular or peculiar people started wearing this object and adorning their body with this object, this ugly object, that you hit a tipping point and people started adopting this shoe. And then after the this sort of trend concludes, people look back on photos of them wearing this thing and go, what, what the hell was I thinking? So what were we thinking? How did we get here? And how did Chris end up in the room where it all happened? So it started in this in this company, SCL, which is this British military contractor. And DARPA, which is the US military's research agency, was funding 
a lot of research into the proliferation of ideas online, profiling. And when you look at the U.S. military, it sucks at doing anything on the internet. Because if you think about it, if you are a programmer, if you're a data scientist, if you're an engineer, you go work at Facebook or Google or or what have you. Because the problem with the army is that it wouldn't hire somebody who looks like me, you know, with, you know, pink hair or blue hair and like nose ring and, you know, tells off people when they piss them off, right? The American military has lots of tanks, but it doesn't have a lot of good programmers. So the firm SCL was quite attuned to what one of their largest clients was looking at, which is how to um, engage with the internet and how to handle and tackle That's this DARPA. problem. D- DARPA and the U.S. military more, more generally. So what I first started working on was doing research on how to take some of the early DARPA research, for example, profiling, which is where you take data from somebody's social media profile and then create a, a sort of psychological profile from that, looking at the relationships between you know, the browsing history that they have or the liking patterns that they have on Facebook or the language that they use and the semantics that they use on, on Twitter or something and like you that. Can and you predict, can predict personality traits from that. You can, can you predict, predict behavior? And, you can. Mm-hmm. You can. You can predict it really well. That's why Google and Facebook and all these companies make tons of money because that data allows you to predict a lot. And if if you think about it, like your your phone knows you better than anybody else. Sure. Google knows you better than anybody else. And so, all of this these sort of discrete patterns that you leave in in this what they would call data exhaust, the sort of all the sort of detritus of data that comes off of you as you as you go through the internet, gives clues, and those clues can help us understand who you are and how you're likely to behave, and. Profiling allows you to better understand who it is that you actually need to go to in order to inject a piece of information or a narrative into this network. So if you want to change anything, change culture. Data, information, and stories. We have always been a collection of our stories, but we are now giving others a way to take our story and turn it into their story, for better or for worse. And that's where things began to change for Chris. Back in 2013, Steve Bannon was looking for ways of fighting a culture war. And that word, culture war, is really important. And he will use it pointedly, because if you think about what is a war, what you do with war is combat. And in order to fight a war, you need an arsenal of weaponry. And what are the weapons for culture? It's information, it's narratives. And when you think about, for example, creating a bomb or a missile, or even a gun, it needs some kind of targeting system. So in a culture war, your payload is a narrative, and your targeting system becomes data and algorithms. In order to fight a culture war, he needed to literally treat it like a war. And so he needed weapons, and so therefore he needed a supplier of weapons. And SCL appealed, because that's what SCL did. And that's when I meet Steve, Steve from America. And he starts asking about how could we change culture. And you know, one of the things that I talked to him about is like, well, you have to first understand what is culture, define it 
And if you're a fashion company and you want, you know, you want to sell this particular design and you want it to be on trend, it's it's what you are asking for is a movement of a curve. And what Steve Bannon was actually wanting to do is hit a tipping point. And if we move these people this way or that way, we are changing the distribution yeah. of people. By the way, that's the way us physicians make diagnosis and prognosis. Yeah. It's all distribution. Everything is a distribution. Yeah. And essentially, Steve Bannon, he goes back to Robert Mercer, who is an alt-right billionaire, and it was this perfect storm of somebody who was militant enough to want to think about an election as a battle, as a war, to think about changing America in terms of of combat, and somebody who was brilliant enough to understand intimately how AI works and who had the money to fund it. And so they went and they bought the company. So all of a sudden, all of the people who were there when we were looking at research on how to defend Britain, defend America, the tools and the weapons and the things that we were looking at in order to defend the people was now acquired by people who wanted to invert that on those same people and treat an American voter in the same way that we would treat a radical Islamist terrorist. And when you think about what is the alt-right, the alt-right is an insurgency. And it was an insurgency that was catalyzed by targeted disinformation. Like a puppet on a string, making us dance. Or in this case, making us angry. But how did they know this data that they could collect would actually enable them to predict and control behavior? According to Chris, they just spun a new reality. So there's this idea of what's called the artificial society, which is that, and, and it's, and it's a, a long-standing sort of uh, theory in sociology, but also kind of in computer science also, which is that if you have enough data on people, you can create a version of reality and a version of you and a version of me and a version of this space, this conversation in a computer, in silicon. And that if you have enough information about the dynamics of those relationships and those, those, those agents you know, in, in that system, you can then spin out a million different scenarios and look at like what are the potentialities of like the future and predict the future. Wow. And then you can play with what happens because their traits, their attributes, how they behave, what they consume is all programmed in there. If you can recreate America in, in a computer, you could play with real life. Chris was smart enough to know not only how this game was being designed, but also how it could turn out. When we come back, Chris blows the whistle on Cambridge Analytica and on a version of the future we may all be heading toward. If today's conversation hasn't yet made you skeptical of big data and information collection, and you're also a growing business, then you might consider one of today's sponsors. NetSuite by Oracle is a business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. They manage sales, 
finance and accounting, orders and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. As I have watched many businesses grow, having proper software management can mean a great deal for a success. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash potential. That's netsuite.com slash potential to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com slash potential. As my guest today will continue to show us, data and information is influential. So make sure to treat it wisely. Chris Wiley was now working for Cambridge Analytica and using tools he had once helped build to fight extremism, to create extremism. So I set up the original research teams that then moved over into this company after Steve Bannon then got put in as the new head honcho. And at first I thought it was quite cool, actually. It's like, okay, like this might be a really enticing thing. But when Steve took over, that's when things started getting slightly warped in the sense that he was interested in subject matter that had no sort of real ethical application. Or at least in my view, didn't have any sort of ethical applications. And... For me, the where it became really alarming was when the algorithms that we were originally looking at in this sort of defensive capacity were repurposed to identify American voters who were more prone to conspiratorial or paranoid thinking. And those people would be targeted with specific narratives that the research showed they were most prone to adopting if you sh- if you sort of exposed them to it. So they realized that if you could first get these people to then join a group or a page, that first of all, when they log into these sites, the sites themselves would would start doing your work for you and that it would start changing and introducing them to other things that are similar to that. But then secondly, it would allow you to develop a relationship with those people in the sense that you could then go and say, hello, all of a sudden they think I'm meeting people, all the people in my community think like me and they're just not allowed to say it. Because look, everyone here is literally talking about the same thing. And why is it that I never see this on CNN? I never hear about this on ABC or NBC. It's because they're trying to hide us. They're the fake news, Hmm. right? And that all of a sudden what started as this online fantasy for them becomes in the temporal space a reality, their reality. Hmm. And it was these encounters over time where they slowly grew, and once they reached a certain mass, they started self-organizing, and then it just had a life of its own. When you log into Facebook or you go on Twitter or whatever, it doesn't, you know, it just it feels quite innocuous in that sense. You're just like going on, you see some friends posting and whatever. Somebody posts something weird or random, and it's like whatever, right? It doesn't feel like this, some kind of large insidious plan behind it. But social media and the internet more broadly is a battlefield now. 
it is a new kind of battlefield, right? In a military doctrine, you've got something called a five-dimensional battle space. You've got land, air, sea, space as an outer space, and then information. And within information, you've got people's minds, it's the cognitive battle that's being waged, and you have cyber. Social media is becoming a battle space, and we aren't really treating it with the gravity that I think it deserves. If Russia took a bomber and flew it over Florida and then dumped tons of propaganda leaflets on election day, people would be absolutely outraged. That would be an attack. That is literally what's happening every single day on Facebook, on Twitter. And we think that it's bad now, but every other country has looked at what Russia was able to do or what a company like Cambridge Analytica was able to do and they are now investing resources. And we are going to see, I think, a scaling of, of disinformation, not just from Russia, but from all kinds of different players. Chris had traveled deep into the wormhole of a data-dense journey, one that started with the Obama campaign and landed in Trump's election. This is a company that took fake news to the next level by powering it with algorithms. This was a major breach of trust. This data was used to explore mental vulnerabilities of people. He succeeded in stopping Cambridge Analytica and helped start a conversation about the news and information that was slowly, according to patterns posited by B.F. Skinner, changing us. So what does that tell us about our minds? and about where AI is taking us. I want to ask you whether these artificial intelligence systems will ever be truly conscious or they're just feedback loops of information that evolve as information without actually having the subjective experience of what we call consciousness, like falling in love or mm -hmm. getting frustrated or mm -hmm. having the fear of death or sure. anything that makes us human. Does artificial intelligence ever have the possibility of creating consciousness? I think absolutely that we will. And I, I would not be surprised if we unpack the problem of consciousness. But here's the question that I would then have is like, is consciousness a fundamental property of the universe. I think it is. And I think it is too. Oh, good. And if it is a fundamental property of the universe, then surely it can emerge beyond simply a human brain. I think it's arrogant to think that only humans could ever be conscious or self-aware. And I think it's really helpful to sort of just think a little bit about what your brain is, right? You've got all of these neurons in your brain and they're connected to each other. And they shoot all kinds of signals at each other. But that neuron doesn't necessarily know exactly what it's doing. And we've got all these little units in your brain. And when you put them together in a particular way, consciousness emerges. And I genuinely think that if brains exist, surely we'll be able to create it. You know, in creating with the help of others, algorithms that correlate immune activity with brain activity, with endocrine activity, with biofeedback, heart biofeedback, brain biofeedback, neuromuscular biofeedback. I see a future where these artificial intelligence systems will optimize our well-being. When we look at 
how society is evolving with AI and tech. We are at the point where we're now putting Alexa in our homes. We are now putting Google Home in our homes, right? We're putting the beginning elements of like pervasive AI systems in our physical space. And here's where it becomes really problematic, is that imagine a situation where we are 5, 10, 20 years down the road, where everything is integrated with AI. And AI has developed to a state where it can think for itself. It is aware, and everything around you, your kitchen, your bathroom, your car, the hallway, the road, your office, is all thinking about you. And it is thinking about you in terms of how to optimize you as, in terms of your value as a consumer, right? Your home, your street, your road, your office is trying to optimize you. And you live in an environment which is no longer passive. You live in a motivated space. The space around you has intentions and motives. And it's about changing how you think. And it is watching you, it is judging you, and it is seeking to influence you. And here's the problem, is that we are rapidly running, sprinting down a path where we are starting to create the beginnings of that space. And we are not thinking, how can you exercise your agency as a person if the environment itself is making decisions around you? So can artificial intelligence therefore ever simulate human creativity, which is disruptive and breaks an algorithm? We already have AI that's creative. When you think about creativity, right, with a person, and you you have new ideas, right? It's because what you do is you touch lots of things, you see lots of things in your environment, and then you put these things together in a new way. And you have a new idea, or you create something new, you draw something, you make something, you sculpt something, you say something, you sing something, whatever. You are taking all kinds of pieces of information from your environment, and then you're producing something new from it. And algorithms can do that. I don't see why we couldn't produce consciousness, and I think it would be conscious. Everything you've said makes total sense to me. I agree with almost everything you say. Sure. There's one slight difference. Okay. In my view, consciousness is irreducible. Mm -hmm. It is fundamental. It is the source of all forms of information encoded both in matter and energy, Mm -hmm. but it is also species-specific. So, you know, the experience of a butterfly is not the experience of a human brain. Mm -hmm. The experience of a rodent is not the experience of a human brain. So there are as many experiences as there are brains, and brains in humans anyway it is our conditioned collective mind that manifests as the global brain, which we mm-hmm. call the internet. Yeah. So for practical purposes, I have no issues with anything that you've said, except one. And that is, everything is conscious. Consciousness is that which makes all experience possible, all yeah. experience known, and out of which all experience is derived. And and I don't necessarily disagree with actually what you're you're mm-hmm. saying. We look at these sort of complex systems of our brain, and you then take a step out and you look at the universe itself. Mm-hmm. And surely there are all kinds of higher-order properties Correct. that exist in that universe 
And so I could rephrase and say that in building an AI system that experiences or thinks or perceives or understands or feels or feels that or imagines that or imagines or dreams that either if you are creating a conscious thing or you are creating a thing that taps into consciousness for me it's sort of moot moot yes when we come back more with chris wiley do we have the potential to harness all this power and create a better reality don't go away my guess is this conversation has been a bit stressful or unnerving at the very least if after today's program you need the help calming down and you've already listened to your daily breath program of the day then i'd like to remind everyone of a helpful app we are partnering with calm has guided meditations on issues like anxiety stress and focus they also have choices of soothing music and more to help us all decompress from today's episode if you are indeed interested in this calming support please make the most of an offer they've given us right now infinite potential listeners can get 25% off a calm premium subscription at calm.com/infinite that's calm.com/infinite get unlimited access to all of calm's content today at calm.com/infinite before we return to our conversation our third and last supporter today is parachute Before there was AI that could read your temperature, your heart rate, your sleep and wake cycles, before any of this, we still had the choice to better our lives. There are few material things that actually help our overall well-being, but embellishing a space with the best and most comfortable wares can make a house feel like a home. Parachute makes high-quality products such as sheets, towels, rugs and more. that i recommend if you're looking to start fresh with new linens visit parachutehome.com/infinite for free shipping and returns on parachute's comfortable home essentials that's parachutehome.com/infinite house linens may not seem as earth-shatteringly powerful as big data but we can use both to change our reality and do so with intention so let's return now to our conversation Christopher Wiley is my guest and we are talking about making our future more intentional so you know i'm very active on social media yeah what i noticed is whenever i posted anything political doesn't matter which side i took mm-hmm. i would get blasted by the trolls It yeah. doesn't matter what i said yeah. but as soon as i started giving these ideas for people to reflect on their own personal social community career well-being and their health mm-hmm. 
then suddenly it was like I was getting people from both sides engaging in a positive way. Do you think there is a way for technology to bypass the war and create that cultural shift that actually looks for a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful planet? Because after all, the internet is our global brain, isn't it? I think the answer to that is yes. But it requires a concerted effort and motivation on the part of people who design these systems themselves. The way AI works right now it's not ethics-based, it's not, it's not morality-based, it's based on optimization. The engineers who would build that algorithm to, to optimize don't think about, is this good for people? Is this optimization even good or healthy for people? And what I would say is, AI would not have to behave that way if the people building that AI first give consideration to putting some brakes on certain kinds of behavior. Currently, we make it. We're in charge of it. So we, sure. we, can, we can decide what it can and can't do. And first, understanding that when you look at, when you look at history, there's only a couple examples where, where people start to become products or productized in some way. Right? You have the slave trades. You have the sex trade. You have the organ trades. And now what's emerging is a data trade where you are being optimized. And where harm comes is where we treat people as some kind of product. The fundamental perspective that allows that harm to happen is that I can allow myself to start thinking about you as something rather than someone. Are we capable of inventing a better future for humanity with the kind of insight that you have And are there enough people that could create a critical mass through cyberspace for that to happen? Because otherwise, we're doomed to extinction. I mean, with climate change, with terrorism, with war, with eco-destruction, we don't realize this. But, you know, the human experiment may soon be over. So with visionaries like you, with the background, you're only 20 what? 8? 29. 29. So most of your future is ahead of you. Do you have a vision of how we could avert disaster and extinction? Um, First of all, do you even buy into that idea? I am really worried about where we are heading as a species. Yes. This is the interesting thing that I find. Because you mentioned the environment. Mm-hmm. And we don't give the respect that the environment deserves often because it's it surrounds us and it's hard to sort of it's hard to point to. The same acquiescence to climate change is the same acquiescence to what's happening right now in AI because we are it is hard for people to understand systems. And I was talking with several groups of indigenous leaders from South America recently. And one of the things that they were talking to me about is fighting for spirits in a forest. And I found it really interesting because they were talking about how with mass ecological destruction, spirits get upset. And, you know, if for, you know, my white 
Western ears, right? You know, I immediately start th- I start thinking about, okay, you're talking about ghosts. What are you talking Superstition, about? Superstition, yeah. And I say, what is a spirit? So they start explaining, like, everything has this essence in a forest and that whenever you do one thing, like, it affects... Everything certain, else. Everything else. And I go, what in my parlance, as sort of a, as a, as a data scientist, actually, the spirits, what I would call, you call a spirit, I would call a cascade of information. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things that I think would be helpful, particularly for people in the West, to sort of learn from perspectives of other kinds of people who understand systems. You look at, you know, the the word ecology, right? Mm-hmm. It took white people in the West, you know, like centuries to develop something called ecology, yeah. which is traditional indigenous knowledge. Correct. It's just we wouldn't listen because we don't like the vocabulary that they use. Mm -hmm. And it takes a century and then we realize, oh, there's like, oh my God, there's like systems in the world and nature. So what you're basically saying is all information is entangled with all information. Everything Mm -hmm. in our entire universe Mm -hmm. is information flows. Beautiful. Now, given that, What are your personal goals for the future? Because technology is inescapable. It's part of our evolution now as a human species. Either we adapt or we become extinct or we use it to our advantage. What advice do you have? Be conscious of the space that you're in and understand that the space that you're in is not passive, it's active, there's all kinds of things happening. And pay attention to how things affect each other. And that can be applied to the evolution of our culture, that can be applied to the evolution of AI, that can be applied to what's happening to our environment. Do you think the prognosis is good? Do you think we can reverse some of these extremist trends? Yes, of course we can. What will it take? It will take, when it comes to the development of AI, and that could either save humanity or destroy humanity, Mm -hmm. requires tech companies to actually take humanity seriously. How can we help the world take what you're saying seriously and these tech companies to take what you're saying seriously? I think talking about it really helps. So this is a useful conversation. I I think talking about it helps because talking about the fact that um, information has power, narratives have power, technology has power, AI has power, systems have power, like, and that these are not and should not be niche issues because you are in a system. And so we should be talking about that system. The first step is talking about it and identifying where the problems are and where the problems could be so that we at least start thinking about it. Because if we don't start thinking about it, then nothing will happen. In the last two episodes, we glimpsed into the future with the people who are part of building it. Their words should sound prophetic, because they are. 
They know, as I think we are learning, that we have the power for the first time in human history to really shape our evolution. They also know more than anyone that it is humans who must do the shaping with humanity. What then are the goals? The values, the conscious choices we are making right now. I don't want to be optimized. I want to be considerate and kind. I don't want to be reactive. I want to be creative. I don't want to be data. I want to be me. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential. If this episode connected with you, please share it with a friend and leave us comments so we get to hear from you. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential. <laughs>